Hi everyone, welcome to Real World Parenting, tips and scripts for parents on roads less traveled. I'm Dr. Laura Anderson, a child and family psychologist, and I'm glad you're here. As you settle in to listen, let me reassure you that you are in the right place. If you're a loving parent looking for answers and encouragement, and maybe even a chuckle amidst hard things. If you're a loving parent who's raising a child on a journey different from your own as a child, and are seeking a compass as you navigate uncharted waters. This is the place for you if you get the theory of parenting advice you keep hearing, but for the love of chocolate and curry and all other nearly perfect things, that theory never quite works as planned with your actual children. Finally, you are in exactly the right place if you're a therapist or clinician who works with kids, teens, and families. My intention is that these episodes will deepen your work and change lives. So in this intro, I get two to three minutes here to boil down 30 years of work in my psychology offices and my experience as a mom in the trenches and let you know what I'll offer with this podcast. I almost called it Lessons from Our Living Rooms or Couch Conversations because my offerings will be things I have learned and keep learning from the vantage point of both my living room couch and my therapy office couch. The aim of this podcast is to offer hope, support, wisdom, and experience in community, and to provide clinicians a window and window to provide clinicians a window into what our recommendations actually mean for real families in real life. We will talk all things kid and teen related and shine a spotlight on families navigating identities related to race, gender, and adoption. We will explore common child and adolescent mental health and wellness related topics. The hope is to leave you with a greater understanding of your child's needs and a you got this energy. Episodes will also feature actual practical tips and answers to questions including well, what do I say when and well, what do I do when so that you feel equipped to handle the day-to-day parenting puzzles we face. So pour yourself a cuppa or lace up some shoes or hide in your busy parent bathroom for a bit and join me for head and heart conversations about loving and living with children walking past less often traveled. Have I mentioned I'm glad you're here? I trust that you'll be glad too. Hi everyone, welcome to the second episode this week. It is a pleasure and an honor to have with me um, a really seasoned, practiced clinician and someone with lived experience in what we're talking about this week. I'm looking forward to what she has to bring to this conversation and to leave you all with some, some thought-provoking ideas and some concrete tips and scripts for families who are trying to figure out how to support a child of color who is in school in predominantly white institutions. We know a bit about what that experience is like. Obviously, each kid is, is their own kid. Each young person is their own person. Nobody can script exactly what happens in predominantly white institutions for kids of color, but there are some themes and patterns that come up with regularity. And today, my guest is going to talk to us a little bit about those themes and leave us with uh, some tips and scripts together. We'll, we'll come up with ways to support young people and families who are navigating predominantly white institutions with children of color. So my guest today is Dr. Kimberly Finney, and it's an honor to have her here. And I'll let her just introduce a little bit about how she came to be here. Tell us a little bit about your your background, Dr. Finney. Well, thank you, Dr. Laura Anderson, for inviting me. It's always a pleasure to kind of tag team with you and kind of brainstorm various uh, topics. Um, So, uh, my background uh, is a board-certified clinical psychologist, and I have worked uh, both many years as a clinician, uh, as well as holding uh, physician's uh, professorship at primarily white institutions, and also I'm a parent. Right. And a grandmother, newly minted grandma. Yay, we love that. So I'm really happy to be here to kind of, you know, break bread and look a little closer uh, at 
what happens to uh, specifically um, African-American or black children uh, in these situations. Awesome. All right. Ready to get into it. (laughs) Nice. So... So yeah, as I, as I was saying, we, we can't guarantee an experience. There are regional differences. There are educational level differences. And in theory, you'd think there'd be pretty big differences um, between types of schools or like elementary school, middle school, high school, college, beyond college. And yet, and yet my understanding is that even within lots of these different institutions, there are still, as I mentioned, um, predictable things or predictable experiences that African-American or black youth, young people have in predominantly white educational institutions. So I'm wondering if you can just start, you know, broadly with like, what are some of the things we see happen to and happen for uh, or don't happen for black kids in predominantly white institutions? Well, I, I, you know, and I, I hear the, some of the internet intersectionalities that you're presenting, like, you know, what type of school, where the school is, who's in the school, but I would lean toward, that's just all a conversation about geography, period in. And if you have a certain amount uh, melanin in your skin, you know, the historical factors, the social, economic, and educational structures within America are the same. Right. And I've worked with parents as a clinician in various states, CONUS and OCONUS, and like you alluded to, those factors are still there. There are certain identifiable things that happen when you have melanin in your skin. <laughs> and, you know, that that's the way I'm, I'm going to kind of talk about it during this session in terms of how uh, white institutions and uh, educational systems in general right, uh, respond to kids as well as adults. And some of the stuff I'll talk about as you're kind of guiding this conversation, um, and some of this information will come from uh, a textbook that uh, was published and released uh, in July of 2020, titled The Realities of Diversity on Skin Color and Gender. And there was one chapter in particular where uh, students in predominantly white institutions, and then another chapter, that, and that particular chapter chapter was authored by Brittany Morris. I want to give her kudos. I was uh, co-editor with Terrence Fitzgerald, and then coupled with a chapter on black and brown professors in predominantly white institutions. Mm. And what's really interesting, what's really interesting is that this and each chapter has 10 interviews and of course you wrote a chapter in the book as well which i thought was uh equally amazing (laughs) on uh white women raising children of color but the themes that were highlighted in students who are being educated in predominantly white institutions were very similar to professors who were teaching masters and doctoral level professors that are teaching in predominantly white institutions. And the the questions were pretty much the same throughout the book, you know, and so we got to ask what was growing up like for you? And how do people view your group based on your experience and how you view other people that are not in your group? And the, the similarities were, were were striking. Yeah, wow. Striking. And, and uh, you know, I and I've often said, as you as you mentioned, as my listeners will come to know, I am uh, parenting a black child and have had to do several different 
school searches and it nothing in my humble opinion nothing points out the disparities uh, around race and class and education in our country like trying to do a school search for um, a child of color that you're hoping will have not only well-funded and resourced schools but also um, representation that, that choosing schools that are considered, quote, high performing, um, you know, if you're hoping for, you know, great solid academic foundation that's consistent with committed teachers and all the resources that they need, never mind committed, resources that they need, that it is very, very difficult to find places that fall into that category and also have black teachers, black administrators, um, and uh, black students in the classroom with your child. And, and again, the, the, the very clear statement being that isn't about anything other than structural racism historically in our country. Um, so let that be clearly stated uh, that, that has nothing to do with motivation or lack of prioritizing education and all the other coded ways we hear people talk about communities of color and learning. It actually has everything to do with structural racism and the, the remnants of that. So, so within that, talk a little bit about like, and, and you know, and feel free to, to speak freely, right? I mean, this is the parents who are talking, they're like, what is my kid gonna experience? So if I have a black child and they're in a white institution, what are they gonna experience because of the melanin in their skin? Like, you know, talk to me like it's my first time thinking about it or, or my 51st, whatever, what do you think? Right, and, and again, I, I want to kind of emphasize, because there is no monolithic group. Right. Right, but, and so what I'm going to say, you know, kind of imagine it in the, in the bell-shaped curve where it's probably about 68%, right, and then there's the signs. And so the first thing that most people report and feel, it, even before they open their mouths or are assessed, is that you're not as smart as the white kids. Yeah, I mean, think about that, right? Like right out of the gate, just start there. Start there with the idea that you're not as academically capable just because of the melanin that you move around the world in. Yeah, so, and so it ugh. starts there and it kind of continues. And now and then you'll get positive reinforcement. Then you go up to another grade, another grade. One of the uh, uh, narratives or uh, shared an experience where first year of college now and, you know, very intact family, et cetera. And, you know, they're doing orientation and she's there and she's so excited. And a young white girl was talking to her and she's like, oh my goodness, I've only been here 30 minutes and look at here, I have a friend. And they go to the next table or whatever and the white female turns to her and says, boy, this must really be exciting to, for you and somewhat scary since you're here on affirmative action. Which is the second thing, right? So that you're not smart and 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 you got here only because of that melanin which somehow we also think makes you less smart like like that is really a crazy making uh feedback loop right that like you're you're not here on merit because you can't be as smart fundamentally and you must have been given a special again a handout <laughs> to be here and to be in this yeah. space oh yeah you're, you're not quite you can't be as smart as me or smarter and you know i I've, I've termed this the uh, piano principle Ooh, tell me more about that the piano principle is just kind of that right you know if you are someone with melanin someone without melanin really consciously or unconsciously doesn't expect you to have the same thing they have or better Right. So if you're here, it must be because of affirmative action. And if I'm here, it's because I worked hard. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. If you've got a piano and I don't have a piano, do you sell drugs? <laughs> right? right. Or if you have a house that's bigger than someone without melanin's house. Yeah. How'd you get that house? Right. Mm -hmm. 
I don't have a house like that. Well, how'd you get that car? I don't have a car like that. And so it's not just the kids that experience it, the parents experience it too. Right. And they will see and identify it a lot of times for the, for the kids, especially when they're younger. And what parents will often try to do is armor, armor them with Teflon, Bob wire, pit bull, you name, you name mm-hmm. it. And no, no, no shame on pit bulls. My son has a pit bull, but I'm just saying, <laughs> you know, they, you, you, you armor them because it's matter of, it's just a matter of time. And I will tell you another very interesting thing, talking to adults, professors now, who have paved the way, they have the scars to prove it, and they, they, they I, I, 78% roughly said they were called out their name in work when they were in the third grade. Wow. By third grade. Because that's an, that, this is another important point that I hear a lot from well-meaning white people in particular. Um, and it was by another kid. Right. It was by another kid. So third grade, you're what, eight years old? Mm, eight or nine, yep. Yep, seven, yes. eight or nine. And, you know, just an aside, but it does, I really do think it matters in New York and some other places. Uh, the schools are trying to really... Uh, come up to the plate and and make their faculty administrators as well as their curriculum more diverse. And so one of the things, and this is a talk show, I'm not going to name, you know, mm-hmm. name names, but <laughs> they had a guest who pulled their kids out of private school, white female, because uh, the, the assignments that the, the seven and eight graders were given was too ridiculous. It was too over the top. One of the assignments was write a letter to the Washington uh, baseball team, football team, changed their name, mm-hmm. and 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 not necessarily apologize, but address the insensitivity and how long it took. And another, and, and so it was those kinds of assignments, like in terms of them at that young of an age recognizing your privilege and the parents aren't having it mm-hmm. they thought well, let's just let them be kids but kids with melanin don't don't have that option mm-hmm. and so then the question becomes at what age do you start addressing white privilege and again, I want to define that it's not people taking things that you've earned. It's the things that you haven't earned, i.e. white privilege, that is taken for granted that gets you ahead of the race before someone with melanin in their skin. Right. And that, wow. I mean, thank you, Dr. Frank. I mean, that's, there's a lot in there. I've been like madly jotting notes here on the side. Um, and I think that's really, really powerful. So, so one of the issues that I hear in there is um, curriculum, right? So how do schools um, struggle to meet the needs of kids of color? It's the, the, the old school curriculum, the not challenging power and privilege, the whitewashed versions of history that um, folks know they're sending their kids of color into classrooms where that version of history will be taught and that many times the the teachers who i mean and i with and i know you would say the same thing you're a te- like with all respect to teachers trying to juggle how to do this when they're raised in their own whiteness and they're raised in the own their own the same educational system right so let me just say very clearly not to bash but to look at the reality that 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 a child of color is sitting in a room full of other students who aren't equipped to have these conversations being led by a teacher who, if they're raised in their own whiteness in the old educational system and haven't had to challenge what they thought they know about what they know, then there's a lot of room for those conversations to either completely leave out and neglect a black perspective or, or you know, sometimes the well-meaning, um, you know, approach of people who get all fired up to teach around, you know, black culture and, and then only teach racism. 
only teach harm, only teach slavery, you know, the like slavery, Martin Luther King, you know, Rosa Parks, and then Obama trajectory, right? Like that that is the entirety of black culture is the harm and the struggle. And so I don't know if you- And it, it's so, so wrong, you know? So if a second and third grader uh, with melanin has to sit through all the lies, yeah. right? They sit through the lies and they're indoctrinated Jane Elliott said it best. She says, we do no, no longer have an education system. We have an indoctrination system. Mm, wow. That, you know, when you look at maps, we're the biggest. We're the strongest. When you look at comparison to, to other countries, it's an indoctrination that we are this. It's an indoctrination that black people's history started with slavery, which is so far from the truth. Right. We and, were kings and king queens and mathematicians and farmers and you name it. The, our history goes way back. It did not start with the colonizers. Yeah. And, you know, some schools now are moving to decolonize the curriculum. Yeah. And my question is, that is fantastic. Who's going to do it, though? The colonizers? <laughs> Sorry. Right? I mean, no. Hello. Like somebody, they don't yeah. hire other faculty to do it. A lot of times the, the African-American faculty is somewhat ignored. You should be lucky to be here. Well, and that speaks to your point earlier that, that, that black faculty is having the same experience of like, hey, you got here. It can't have been that hard for you. Clearly, you're doing fine. You're here with us. Like, and sort of relegated to, to being the representation for students. Because there are, you know, given how, how comprehensive some of the structural stuff is, when we're talking about schools, we, we just mentioned, you know, there's the curriculum thread. Uh, and we can talk at the end a little bit about how parents, you know, what parents can do. I mean, you know, push for advocacy around social justice curriculum and decolonized curriculum and get involved in, in levels once you've landed on a school for your kid. But the, the curriculum thread is a, is it seems like it's a huge piece. It's the wallpaper to the room that your kid is sitting in all day, every day. And knowing that our curricula often, you know, silence or relegate, um, you know, black children to supportive roles or struggle roles. And, and because white teachers and leadership have a hard time naming the privilege, then they're not having conversations with, with white kids about whiteness. They're having conversations about the black struggle uh, in isolation. And so it's an invitation for schools to start looking at teaching about white racial identity, white racial identity development, white privilege, what that means, and how to decolonize what's being presented. So, so curriculum is definitely something that that you know and, and it's from everything it's from the whole structure to what speakers you introduce what books you're having your kids read what elements of different historical groups you're studying when do you challenge text or not challenge text all of those things are sort of fall in the in the problematic curriculum uh basket another and, oh, yeah. and the conversations that the parents are having, having with their kids at that age i think you know seven eight year olds are the proper age because based on my data if they know that the n-word they're ready right well and you know that's interesting right i mean they clearly right they're associating that word with melanin and it comes from somewhere and it, it's interesting i know like the data on that is that uh, black folks in the United States start talking to their kids about race in general, identifying people by race, et cetera, when their children are three. And for white kids, it's 11 to 12. So that's a decade head start that, that, that black students are having, and black students are coming into these spaces, especially mm -hmm. if they're being raised by conscious parents who are trying to create racial identity and have, have been doing the naming of race things. You're, you're sending kids of color into these settings with some language, although no way to really fully understand the scope of structural racism and the impact on it. What they know, what their experience is often that they feel as if they are, um, yeah, being given a special privilege or not taken as seriously or expected to be really good at sports 
or music or dancing um, and not necessarily on the academics, right? That this may be the experience of kids or that also that they will have the N-word thrown at them or, um, you know, any other kind of, uh, you know, local people try to communicate them with, um, you know, dialect and copying what they hear and see other places and things that just don't make a lot of sense. What What would you say? You know, yeah, we learned ahead. we learned in grad school. I think it was the first cognitive behavioral course with Dr. Friedberg, and he said children learn by what they see and not by what parents say. Yeah, I I think that's a great right. Like when I talk to people, and it's mm-hmm. so true. Mm-hmm. It's so true. So you may. People may say, well, you know, I'm not racist, I'm an ally. I, in fact, I never use that word. You still don't get a pass. Right. <laughs> because Ibram's book, Ibram X. Kendi, you know, mm-hmm. the whole anti-racism. And I, and I did a beta study um, this year uh, on it as well, just kind of surveying uh, folks. And it, it matched uh, what he was saying. It's just not enough right to not ever say bad words about a group of people you have to take it one more step right and you know and looking at it in first degree second degree and third degree racism right Mm -hmm. and that it's a continuum Mm -hmm. and so if i'm in line you're behind me for example but the cashier goes to you you shouldn't smile and go up, right? That's that's an example of privilege that you didn't earn. I was there first, but you get to go right. first. Say, I was not next. She was. Right. As opposed to standing there or taking advantage of the fact, you know. And we cannot. see that happening in, with adults all the time. Children are watching, yeah. you know. Um, and, so, and they see who isn't the social justice realm, right? Nobody well, says anything, and and I think also too. I won't say nobody. That's no, hyperbole. No, no, no. <laughs> I do. Um, I think it's also interesting too that children notice who's invisible. So, so even if you're not saying negative things, if if all the leaders in your community and all the leaders in your neighborhood and all the coaches and all the, are white. Right. I mean, like it, it just speaks a lot to who isn't at your table, speaks as loudly as what negative words you're saying at your table in different mm-hmm. ways. Right. So. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, that we don't we have we encounter lots of young white children in predominantly white institutions not prepared to um, think about race, even let alone have conversations about it. Like it's, it, they take for granted that race doesn't have to be something at the forefront of their mind. Um, and so it, it leaves kids who have not explored racial identity paired up with students of color who are doing that in isolation, eight hours a day. Um, we've talked about the curricular piece. Tell me a little bit about another thread that I think happens. Talk to me about the behavior. Do you, do you know like the beha- how behavior is read differently among school children um, in predominantly mm-hmm. white institutions? Mm-hmm. What do we know about uh, behavioral interventions and discipline and, and, and that kind of stuff? For sure. You know, it, the, it's so breath halting on some level when you kind of observe or, or experience, you know, uh, Johnny is jumping around from desk to desk, seeing what other kids are doing, and he is just so inquisitive, <laughs> right? If Jamal does it, he's disruptive. Yeah. Right? Same behavior, but they have different uh, adjectives to describe it, adverbs to describe it. The adjective to describe him or her and adverbs to describe the, the behavior. Well, well, it's interesting. For a long time when that when those statistics came out, right? So we know that black children are disciplined more harshly than, than white children starting in preschool. Starting as early as preschool, there are suspensions. There are suspensions from preschool, expulsions from schools at like three times the rate or four times the rate, black boys and black girls for a while there was emphasis on the black boy um data gap and now we're seeing more and more that black girls are also suspended with significant you know higher frequency 
And I think like some fo- some people I know, some folks are trying to make sense of that by thinking, well, you know, I mean, sometimes the, these kids come from homes where, I mean, the, mom, the parents are doing the best they can, but mom isn't there because she's working two jobs because it's hard because of racism. And so her kid comes to school uh, and, and he's just less control. Like there was sort of this interesting assumption that that maybe the black children were less well behaved in school because of racism and social cultural factors that meant their resources were challenged right it, you could see them trying to do a social justice interpretation of why black kids might struggle and yet what we know from the data is actually as you just pointed out the exact same behavior it's not the same behavior. And, and this is the thing that I think really, really important to let's stop. And that is these, these connotations and descriptives of people of color have been around since the late 1500s, early 1600s. Mm-hmm. And it gets repackaged and repackaged and repackaged. The platform was set from the um, arrival of the Puritans. It was set, and that you know, uh, black boys to black men are violent. Right. And I was I'm reading recently Stamped, a uh, great book, and he does a historical review, and the whole thing about violence actually stemmed from slave revolts. I mean, the irony on that is is deplorable in terms of like who's violent in the situation in which people are enslaved. Yeah. Where's right. the violence? Yes, yes. You know? so it's, just, it's just amazing. And, and, and little girls of color are sexualized as well as adults. And, you know, they're in the low room. But can I share with you a couple of quotes? Yeah, from I love that. This book? So now these are college students now and so there were 10 narratives one one, these are some quotes one time a professor told me my hair was nappy Hmm. the media i think tell people what to think of me Hmm. i've had a lot of people view me as this ghetto ratchet homegirl just because i'm black Mm One professor told the students, according to the narratives, you guys are pretty much set up to fail. And at the end of the day, only a couple of you will get your bachelor's degree. Oh, wow. Yes, this is college. And it's very similar when you look at, you know, the, 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 the narratives from elementary school, junior high, high school, in educational systems where very few people look like them. Right. And these are usually, you know, good good people, right. well-meaning, mm-hmm. but they have their stuff and their thoughts about people who look like me, and you're not gonna really do much to change that. And they'll, or they'll say, oh no, I don't have a problem. Really, what, how many people of color do you hang around with, right? Now I'm jumping to uh, the, uh, um, there, there's one chapter on white women in diversity. And the white, my whole life is diverse. My gardener is from South America. My nanny is from Mexico. That, that, so the idea of diversity and the idea, which was really interesting, and you and I talked about this, that the author of that chapter, which was uh, Shannon Dunn, Dr. Dunn, uh, they don't talk about race and diversity. Yeah. It, it's just not an issue where the chapters were black adults were asked, and it was around the, you know, the issues of uh, microaggressions and intra- uh, microaggressions, you know, they don't talk about it. In fact, there was a percentage of, of, of in that group that said, you know, they had no idea that people of color felt a certain way about them. They thought the people of color were jealous and wanted to be like them. 
Right. Like then, uh, so you talk, uh, you talk about takeaways. One takeaway is, no, that is not true. <laughs> right. <laughs> we, we want to be in our lane, you be in your lane. If we can sit at the table and break bread and talk, that's wonderful. But there's no no envy or jealousy, just, just the desire for fairness. I think that's, uh, you know, it's a nice transition. I could talk with you for hours about these things and I'm looking forward to having you back already and we're not even done with this one but I, I would like to talk a little bit about so so we've discussed like the, the the some of the challenges in a nutshell and then I've got a question for you about the armor mm-hmm. um, some of the challenges are a combination of like finding schools that have representation not only in other students but in leadership positions so that kids of color see themselves mirrored in classmates and uh, adults, um, challenges about behaviors being interpreted differently and so much more disciplinary action having been taken, that fundamentally that in educational institutions uh, consciously or otherwise interact with students with melanin as if they are less capable here because of a gift that wasn't deserved and aggressive um, and impulsive mm-hmm. and... And, and they spill and they cheat. And, okay. So, right. So, dishonest, cheating, stealing, like that, these things weave their way in, in, into the way teachers talk to the children, to the way decisions are made about behavior. Uh, we didn't even touch on this, but I'll just throw it out there. Um, uh, honors class placement, the number of parents of color that I've heard had to fight to get their kids in an honors class placement. Um, we know special education classrooms are heavily overloaded with kids of color um, in school systems. And, and can I just add yeah. one thing? And when those parents have to do that for their kids, right, mm-hmm. when they're young, at a certain point, explain to your kid what you did. Because right. if they go on to higher education, now they're going to have to do it for themselves. Well, and, and so I can't tell you the number of first year students, hmm. grad students, hmm. grad students that were immediately sent to the writing center even before their first assignment. Oh, wow. Was given or due. <clears throat> so, so and I- this, you know, and I just happened to be walking past the student lounge and this, this young student's in tears because it's hurtful. And these are all of these microaggressions, intentional or unintentional. It can be either or, right? Right. And Daryl Sue really emphasizes that, and he's been emphasizing it lately because there was some pushback as people of color was like, you no, know, they mean it. They mean it when they do it. And sometimes they do and sometimes they don't. But she, anyway, she began to tell me the story. Yeah. And she's like, I've gotten all A's. This is how I got to graduate school. I'm an excellent writer, but I was told. So these accumulations of micrograde, and become an aggregate. And I mean, we could have a whole nother session on the impact to the cardiovascular system and the health system. And the idea that you see all of these health disparities in these numbers, right? Black people are higher for higher rate of hypertension. Black people have a higher rate for cardiovascular. Black people have a higher rate for diabetes, blah, 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 blah. And it's not because of their black skin. Yeah. It's because of the micro aggregates of aggressions that cause that. Because this is the, this is the uh, drop the mic finding. <laughs> and that if it were due to the melanin in their skin, the rates in Africa would be equal. Right. And it's less than 10%. Wow. And so the studies would also, this research also leads you to believe that we're just weak. Something's different with our genetics that give us, because they, they, they truncate. Hmm. They don't say our theory is because, or we believe it's because, or there's lots of research that shows what happens to the blood vessels microaggression on top of microaggression, the higher number amount of stress predisposes you to the, these things. And it's, and it's not because you have melanin. It's because of how the majority in power view you 
It's because how the majority in power treat you. And think about that too when you imagine young children who can't, who don't have the verbal skills or the cognitive skills yet to understand why it feels as if they're not expected to perform as well or they're not seeing themselves around them. There's no, not worth in their identity, not, not thriving in their history and that kind of thing. So, so since we've named the fact that, that there are these challenges, let's give parents some, some, some hope or some tools. You mentioned that, that if, if you are in a place where for any number of reasons, your child is a kid with melanin in a predominantly white school, what does that armor you talked about look like? You said parents give their kids armor. If I'm a parent and I'm needing to, to I know this is a situation that is going to be for my child, what kinds of things do you think inoculate uh, a child of color against harm in these situations? All of the positive reinforcements about the beauties and the talents that they do have. At the same time, you sprinkle that with realness. Oh, I like that. Sprinkle that with realness. Sprinkle that with with realness. You know, okay, you're going you're going over Johnny's house. Don't go upstairs. Make sure for the parents. Make sure that the parents are there. Mm-hmm. And these are the things you can and cannot. Well, mo- why, mommy? Why not? Well, these. Let's look, look at the beautiful color of your skin. Sometimes people and, and, and fill in the blank. And you want to do age appropriate. Right, right. Age appropriate, right. So it is a process. It's not one conversation. It's many conversations as you continue to build the support for them. Right. So right? And, and this may sound a little, hmm, and, 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 and so listeners, make sure you write Laura. <laughs> Not me. Nice. um, um, You want to make sure that you're you're all hands on deck. And even though it's going to be stressful, and when you get these letters or these little notes from the teachers, investigate them. Over time, it's going to get really frustrating and you're going to be thinking, I just don't know why my kid won't act right. And quite often the fundamental attribution bias is made that it's something about the kid. Don't, don't bite that apple. Hmm. Investigate. Investigate. Right. Investigate and still continue to build bridges for your kids by any means necessary. Yeah. So because it doesn't stop, yeah. right? So you if, you, if you plan on them going to college and being successful, the last thing you want to do is this punishment thing to try and teach them how to act. You do want them to be appropriate and respectful, but make sure it's not just the teacher being overwhelmed or the teacher having their own biases which is very possible because the teachers come from somewhere. Yeah, they're human, right? And that's why I said on tons of respect for teachers doing their jobs. They, they, they come from what somewhere. And again, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, a teacher as well, right? right. I'm, in, I'm in an academic setting. And I see, I see other pieces of them. Yeah. Like they see other pieces of me. We're, we're colleagues. And, and so it's just like a barber, right? You're not going to just go to anybody to get your hair cut or color. Yeah. It's kind of by, by word of mouth and, and test and tried. And so, you know, try to develop a relationship with that teacher. And then as the kids get older and older, again, sharing with the child what you've done and how you did it. How you've advocated. One of the things that I talk about and that listeners are going to get ready to hear me talk about again and again, too, is the the power and the importance of naming naming the structural racism, right? You can talk about the teachers because otherwise kids are feeling, they're, they're totally aware that something doesn't feel right and that their assumptions are being made about them or they get blamed for things or they get overlooked for stuff and they will start to believe it has to do with their person and that there's something in them if they don't understand because all all the time especially white parents (laughs) white parents let's just say will be like they're too young i don't want them to think the world doesn't like them because of their skin it's like you can talk about structures and history and 
uh, and like old school thinking that in some people were taught that black and brown people, you know, can't sit still or aren't safe with their hands and feet when you're talking to younger kids. And so again, the, this is a whole other episode, which I'm looking forward to, but like what age, how do you talk to a preschooler versus an elementary schooler? So the point is well conveyed that, 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 that it needs to be developmentally appropriate and that you want to both name racism as a structural issue and also make sure you're playing and you mentioned this but i'm going to hit it again honor and homage to the amazing parts of whatever your child's cultural uh background is so that you aren't only talking about their skin color when it's in the context of predicting or explaining racism am i does that sound right (laughs) okay it sounds absolutely right and the the one thing i want to like highlight and tie a bow on that last statement that you made is that quite often when these when these events happen, these microaggressions, be it verbal or physical, uh, we get, we feel ashamed. Hmm. And we, then we, and we won't say anything. Uh, and, and, and so if I could do a hashtag, hashtag time up, no, hashtag no shame. Hmm. Because you didn't do anything, someone else did it. Right, and you have to be comfortable calling attention to it. And to you have to call it, it out. I, I, I'm going to share a really brief story to kind of uh, highlight that. Yeah. So in a store, taking an item back, and I didn't have my receipt. And it was it was the day after Christmas. It was a Christmas present. Go in there. And again, this is something sometimes we do because we know we're going to be judged, right? Yeah where you may dress a little differently when you're going out into white America, especially taking something back, you don't have a receipt. And the woman's like, well, no, I'm sorry. Yeah, if you don't have a receipt, you know, sometimes we make special occasions, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, well, where's your supervisor? Well, I'm the supervisor. Well, who's the owner? Well, you know, they're not going to do anything either, blah, blah, blah. And I was just feeling, you feel it in your gut. I was just feeling it. And I said, this is a gift. I did not steal it. And I'm telling you this because I'm black. And sometimes Hmm. people think that we steal. Wow. She dropped her head in shame. Wow. And she said, well, okay, let me see. All I wanted was a different side. (laughs) I had to go through all of that. And my daughter was with me. So now she gets to see sometimes what happens and develop her skill set. It is part of parenting black kids. You have to let them know people will not see you for the good person that you are. And it goes back to Martin Luther King Jr.'s statement when he had a dream where we would be judged by the content of our character, not the color of our skin. Right. He wasn't talking to us because we already know yeah. <laughs> our brilliance and our, you know, and and our hearts and our, you know, loving nature. He was talking about non. He was talking to non-melanated people. Yeah. Wow. I mean, it's a lot to, to, you know, as we sort of wrap up, because again, I'm already having plans for what we can talk about next. But I think what I'm hearing is, given the things that will be faced, it's important to do the inoculation through the celebration of culture, through the knowing of history, through the um, naming of racism at age-appropriate ways, Um, that it's important to be looking for mirrors and mentors outside of school if your child is in a minority situation in school, that you are connecting them with agencies, organizations, and entities where they will be mirrored as a supplement to primary school. And it is it is really being able to to call uh, it out. Yeah, call it out and and build it up. No more silence. And I and I think for which it's and I, I say it, it, it. It's not easy to do because yeah. historically we just package ourselves up and go home. We take care of our kids and and move on. But it's like it's at least asking the question. Yeah. Are you are you saying this because he's a you know an eight year old black boy? 
Right, and to hold people accountable for doing their own work and their own exploration and looking at whiteness, not just looking at diversity as the studying of them. Like the, right. the, the study of diversity asking and the, the welcoming. Just asking the question. I'm not, I'm not saying you're racist, but this right. feels like a racist situation. Right. The, yeah, so then, yeah, I will, I will be offering parents some resources, too, to continue conversations about this. I think if you're a clinician and you've tuned in to kind of hear this conversation, my last thought about that is if you're supporting families, like you just got a bunch of tips about how to support um, transracially adoptive parents, about how to support all kinds of different family, multiracial families with white parents of kids of color, and if you're supporting, um, you know, melanated families in your practice who are sending their kids into uh, all-white schools to be able to have these conversations with parents and ask about race and name it and offer to advocate at school if necessary and offer to help the parents plan scripts for communicating successfully with school, offering the parents a support place to have other people who can hear that this is hard and aren't going to minimize race and aren't going to try to say, well, I'm sure they didn't mean it, etc., etc., and recognizing as clinicians that there are distinct stresses to being a child of color and a predominantly white institution and to being the parents of uh, kids of color in those places and that as a clinician understanding how to show up for those families means doing your own work around your racial identity and being able to have hard conversations around race and learning how to talk to kids around race at different ages so if if you were a clinician listening in any any other tidbits like a, a one-liner or so for any clinicians or did I did I sum that up what do you think you pretty much summed it up. I'll just, again, hashtag it with, it's about re-educating yourself. <laughs> Perfect. So, no, no, that's great. Because we, wait, no, we, you, you can choose. For a large part, you can choose how much you want to walk in the hard parts of looking at your own privilege, uh, mm -hmm. especially as clinicians, when we have privilege in our position as clinicians with families and then in our whiteness as well. And so... Um, yeah, a lot to take a hold of today, Dr. Finney. I'm so glad. This is so much fun for me to sort of kick off the podcast series with bringing in warmth and a wealth of knowledge. And I hope you'll come back and visit another time. Oh, absolutely. I, I always enjoy um, being with you, talking to you. Yay. All right. Well, thanks for listening today. And if you'd like to find me other places, come take a look at my website www.drlaraanderson.com. There you can join my newsletter and uh, keep in touch and find out what is in the works. You can also join me for coffee and conversation uh, and Facebook at Common Cord Psychology Services. So check me out those places and I look forward to further connection. I'm glad you were here today. Yeah.